Bangalore town is an upmarket neighborhood in Karachi, Pakistan, originally home to people who had immigrated from Bangalore, India to Karachi after the partition of the Indian subcontinent. It's a quiet neighborhood now. In 1970, it must have been even more so. But the one thing that stood out in the fall of 1970, a police car parked outside the home of Salim Khan and Shahnaz Gul. Salim was at home with their two children and Shahnaz was in jail, awaiting the trial of the year. The state versus Shahnaz Gul. I'm Sabaim Tears. I'm Tuba Masood. And this is Notes on a Scandal. Season 2, The State vs. Shahnaz Gul. Shahnaz Gul's time in court began in early November when the police arrested her and presented her before a magistrate once they had taken her into custody. Shahnaz was charged with murder as well as smuggling. Shahnaz's lawyer wasn't allowed to meet her. But every detail of Shahnaz's detention was being leaked to reporters, all ready to cover the trial of Shahnaz Gul. Here's the story from Nawai Vakht, a leading Urdu newspaper in Pakistan. Shahnaz Gul has threatened to kill herself by banging herself against a wall if she is not released and has also threatened the police that she will see to each of them once she gets out. She has been refusing food since yesterday afternoon. When the SP Tatar reached the police station, then Shahnaz reiterated that she had said everything. Why wasn't she being released? The police officers and other relevant officers managed to quiet her with great difficulty. At 3 p.m., food was ordered for her from a good hotel. Shahnaz tasted the food and threw the rest at a cop. It has been learned that in view of Shahnaz's condition and threats, security measures have been increased. There were lots of stories like this at the time in Urdu newspapers about how Shahnaz was doing in prison. There were too many, actually. I found them quite interesting because I think each story was more dramatic than the other. There were stories about her crying. There were stories about her not fasting or not observing Eid or something like that. I really want to know who was leaking these things, though. And also, let's remember that later on, a few of these newspapers were forced to apologize, right? So it's very hard to say which one of these stories is true. And we know that police officers love leaking these kinds of details, right? Who knows how much of this is the imagination of some cop on duty versus how much of it is real. Also, so there were a lot of evening newspapers that used to publish these kind of stories. For example, there was Daily News, there was Star. Yeah, and all of these stories were because they were being published as they were happening, essentially, in the great tradition of evening newspapers. They always carried these stories that were quite hard to stomach and still are quite hard to stomach, really. But that's not the only kind of dramatic license being taken with this story, is it? No, there was much more happening. So Shanaz's lawyer, Vahid Farooqi, sent legal notices twice, actually, to different people who were airing in the papers saying that they were going to make a movie or a television play about Shahnaz. Yes, one of them was to Farman Asim, Garif Maktaba Adab Jadid, Ahmed Adin Qasmi, the writer, the publisher of Nawai Vakht and Katil Shafai. And he also sent another notice to the editor and publisher and printer of Afaq, which was another news weekly, mm-hmm. and a movie production studio called FS Pictures, which ran a story that they were going to make a film about the society girl, Shahnaz Gul. It shows you the divide between between Urdu and English as well. There's an issue of Herald magazine, which is obviously an English magazine, mm-hmm. which published a story about society in Pakistan in the 1970s at the time. But the entire story is written as like a fictional story, except it's extremely real. It talks about wife swapping. It talks mm-hmm. about husbands making their wives sexual favors in exchange for, for things. It's this kind of like weird story written 
as if everyone who's reading it already knows what's going on. But there's like this thin veneer of fiction on top of it. But isn't that how like I think people did look at society like it was always like these hushed whispers and everyone knows what's happening, but no one actually comes out and says it. I'm not surprised that Herald published it like that. Also, imagine yeah. the kind of trouble they would have gotten into if they'd actually taken names. I'm surprised that they didn't get into any trouble because I'm sure lots of people recognize themselves in it. Yeah, true. But I think unless they wanted to out themselves or yeah. probably didn't read the Herald that month. True. In any case, in 1970, all the newspapers were completely consumed by the bail proceedings because at this point, Shanaz has not been granted bail as yet. Before we get into the proceedings of the case itself, we're going to introduce and recap once again the list of characters who will appear in this trial. And we know that it's a lot of people and it's been hard to keep track of some of them over the time that we've been mentioning them. For us, we've almost become like family members. So first up is Kuvira Dries, who was the magistrate. Dries was a civil servant at that time, amongst one of the earliest generation of civil service officers in Pakistan. Several years senior to Mustafa, for sure. We did try and get in touch with Mr. Dries to speak to him about this story, but he declined on the grounds that he didn't know much more than what had been presented before him as a magistrate in this case, which I have to say is very Kuvira like When mm-hmm. I used to interview him years ago, he would always say, oh, why are you here to interview me? There are so many people who know so much more else, except he's extremely knowledgeable. And then we have Sheikh, who was Shanaz's lawyer. Sheikh Sheikh, as he was known in the legal fraternity. You can hear more about him in our episode with Sarah Malkani, and we're talking about how the law treats women. Sheikh was also president of Japan at one point, and he was very known, very popular. Unfortunately, when Sabah and I thought we'd approach him or his son for an interview, we learned that both of them had passed away. And he was also assisted by a female lawyer called Memuna Sefi, who was known by her nickname Moon by many lawyers. In many of the newspaper stories, you can see a female lawyer accompanying Shanaz. Then there's also Bahit Faruqi, who was another one of Shanaz's lawyers, who comes up a lot in the initial bail proceedings. And then we have a lot of witnesses that the prosecution presented. It's really unclear to me how many witnesses were presented by the defense, which is Shanaz's side, but we do know who the prosecution witnesses were, including Pervez Horsheed, who was Mustafa's friend and also ran Bombay Motor Store. There's Dr. Fazal M. Khan, who was the first doctor at the crime scene. Then there was nephews, Kesar and Shahid Raza. There's Afid Raza Rizvi, who was Mustafa's friend, and he's the brother-in-law of Shahid Abdi, one of Mustafa's friends. Other witnesses included those like Hassan Mustafa, friends like Malik Fayaz, who was Mustafa's friend and whose house Mustafa was living in. Nasir Tarabi, the poet, who we interviewed, but who again passed away. There was also Mustafa's brother, Irtiza, who at this time was still in the civil service of Pakistan. And the prosecution also presented other officers, for example, the doctor who had examined Shana's girl when she had first come into the Jinnah Postgraduate Medical Center, the employees of Bond Printing Press, which had published the flyer, a forensics expert, as well as a pathologist. And of course, they had the key defendant, which was Shana's girl. So what we're now going to do is take you through the proceedings in the Sessions Court presided over by Magistrate Gouwara Dries. Just to add on, civil servants at this time had magisterial powers and were able to conduct trials in the lower courts. We've already mentioned before that many people from the public came to see Shana's call in court. But in the beginning, of course, the proceedings start off on a more procedural note. November 7th, 1970. Shana's call is taken before a magistrate. The police also adds Martial Law Regulation Number 23, which is a charge of smuggling. SM Mukhtar, the city and additional district magistrate, rejects Shanaz's bail application. The case investigation is transferred to a special police squad, which will be investigated by Mushtaq Ali Khan, the SP of Tata district, and assisted by Mr. Idris, the DSP of the Central Division. According to Dawn, the police has taken precautions to eliminate chances of Shanaz committing suicide. The officers assigned to her 
at Jamshed Quarters Police Station are instructed to keep a non-stop, round-the-clock vigil and two lady searchers are on duty by her side along with armed policemen. November 11th, 1970. Shanaz's lawyer says that Shanaz's Ellen has a heart condition and requests the court to appoint a doctor to examine her, according to the Nawaiwak newspaper. He said he had not received permission to meet Shanaz. Nawaiwak also added the detail that Shanaz was not fasting, even though it was the month of Ramadan. November 12th, 1970. According to Mashrik, Shanaz is taken to Mustafa's house and interrogated there. This to me is actually an example of a story that's possibly untrue. Yeah, I agree, because I feel like they weren't letting her out of bail. Why would they take her to Mustafa's house to interrogate her over there also? And take her through the crime scene. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it sounds very CSI, not Mm -hmm. Karachi police in 1970. November 13th, 1970. Another scandalous report from Star, which reports that Shanaz is now on hunger strike and is not eating food as a mark of protest. And there is an unconfirmed report of high fever. Her lawyer was not allowed to meet her. November 14th, 1970. Shanaz's bail plea is denied. She was refused bail by the district assessment judge, Mr. Hidayat Hussain, as further investigation was necessary in the case. We're going to now go through the bail proceedings, which I think really lay out the case that Shanaz's lawyer was going to present in court. Well, what happened on the day of the proceedings? So apparently, the arguments ran for two and a half hours on the bail application from the state's lawyers as well as the defense counsel. Shanaz's lawyer, Vahid Faruqi, said it wasn't a case of homicide. It was simply that Mustafa Zadi had committed suicide. And instead, it was actually a case of attempted murder by Mustafa, who had tried to kill Shanaz. And that this whole case was actually not about the suicide, but was happening because of some pressure. So the lawyer argued in court that, well, the police, when they were initially making inquiries, they said that Mustafa had committed suicide. But then after all the press and all these, according to her lawyer, false stories that were published about Shanaz murdering Mustafa Zaidi, so much heat was generated in this case that it was transferred to the crime branch, who also then said it was a case of suicide, according to him. So what I found really interesting was the prosecution statement. For example, he argued that in this case, which hinges on circumstantial evidence, men might lie, but circumstances did not. And the circumstances are that Shanaz is... Exactly. He went on in detail about how when uh, Mustafa's nephew had gone to see him at the house on the day, like the last day of his life, that Mustafa was in a cheerful mood. And everything basically points towards murder and trying to justify their decision in actually pointing the fingers at Shanaz because God forbid it couldn't be anything else, right? But that's exactly what her lawyer is arguing against, right? He's reading the FIR in the court and he says that no grounds have been given as to why she could be a suspect, right? Her only fault is that she was in this apartment. Mm -hmm. But the state council contends that it was a case of homicide and not suicide because of the second postmortem report, which had high-powered medical experts show that death was caused by suffocation. So I think like it's a lot of wordplay as well on both of these men, right? Of course, as lawyers do. But then the lawyer's argument to this is that if you re-exhumed Mustafa's body, why did you not conduct another examination of the initial stomach wash of Shanaz? And he comes up with this line that it is a police dream and a fantastic story cooked up by the police. The other thing that he points out, which is really interesting, is that for some reason, the police has submitted the flyers with Shanaz's naked photos in court. His point is, why did they produce these flyers? Shanaz is not charged with immorality, right? His point is that the prosecution is trying to make this case that Mustafa was blackmailing Shanaz and her motive might have been to kill him. His point is, so if she did actually planned to kill him because he was blackmailing her, the posters were still in the house. Interesting that you bring that up, Sawa, because the prosecutor actually argues and asks, why did Mustafa call Shanaz to his apartment? And he seems to think that it was a murder 
which was planned in a way to make it look like a suicide case. Wow. Lawyers will argue, but I think this really sums up how little evidence the police has at this point. Mm -hmm. Even though I Um, think by this point, uh, the prosecutor also mentions that they had nine days to collect evidence, but they still need more time. And they're also making up all these stories, right, about hidden hands behind the crime and all these conspiracies. Yeah, hidden hands just remind me of those influential people who we've never found. But I find it really interesting how it becomes like a character assassination of these two people. It's it's not like anyone's trying to solve everything. It's no, he said, she said, he did, she did. Exactly. One of the other things that's really interesting is the prosecution is saying that the two things that they've resolved is, yes, Mustafa died because of some kind of poison. And the other thing that they think that they've established is that did Shanaz have the opportunity to give him this poison, which Mm. sure is true, right? By virtue of being there, sure, she may have had the opportunity. The one thing they haven't cracked is... Did she have the poison with her? And how are they going to crack that? Can they? Well, this is why there was all this broha about this handbag, right? That mm-hmm. Salim took away Shanaz's handbag that was on the crime scene. But when I asked one of the lawyers who had assisted the prosecution, he was right in the beginning of his career. And he said that, yes, a lot of fuss was made about this handbag, but there was nothing in it. I think this mysterious handbag has lived on in legend for a long time. The time to search the bag would have been there. One of the other arguments that the lawyer also made for getting bail for Shanaz was that Shanaz is a woman. And we talked about this with Sarah Malkani as well. It was also that whole thing about the Begum of Junagar, who was refused bail by Superior Courts just because she was influential. So I think that kind of also added to the whole thing about Shanaz not getting bail. Absolutely. So this is November 14. Shanaz has now been in prison for essentially a week, right? Mm-hmm. And has not been granted bail. One of the things that the prosecutor says is... And I'm quoting from a Dawn story that was published the day after this bail hearing. Late Mustafa Zaidi was a very able man and a poet and had fallen in deep love for the accused. As a matter of fact, she'd become an obsession for him, the prosecutor stated. He then goes on to say a phrase that I never thought I would read in a legal story. He recited a verse of Shakespeare. Romeo is dead. Juliet is alive. Even Shakespeare must be turning in his grave at the wholesale mutilation of this play. I think that it's proven that the person who's mutilating Shakespeare right now is the lawyer. <laughs> that too. But I think it's also theories and statements like this that gave weightage to the suicide pact theory. Like when you're thinking of them as star-crossed lovers, can't be together, society, pressure, all these other things. They're both married. Yeah, and it's kind of taking the spotlight away from the fact mm-hmm. that there was this flyer. The prosecution is submitting this flyer. It almost feels like they're submitting this either to prove some theory of blackmail and so to establish motive, but also, as you said, character assassination, but also to show like a relationship to establish the fact that this woman was, as they say, so intimate with him that she allowed him to take these photos of her. Just, she was so intimate that she allowed her nude pictures to be taken soon after his dismissal. You know, to me, it really makes me realize or remember or bring in focus like how men think about women, that mentality. She only used him. Like he is, sure, yes, he's dead, but he is the real victim. Even though I feel that there are many times when we've been working on this, that I feel the real victim in the story was Shanaz. Her character was being assassinated everywhere in the media, in court, in the police station. I'm sure at home between friends as well. I want to remind you that last week you said that you think it's quite possible Shanaz had committed. I still stick with my theory that she did do it. I'm just, I'm putting this on the record and on air so that Duba's flip-flopping is on this. Both those things can be true, right? She could still have committed murder, but still also go through this character assassination on the grounds of having had, Mm -hmm. for some part, a consensual affair. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree. Like... It could also, like, there's so many ways she could have killed him, right? It doesn't have to be premeditated. It could also just be a crime of passion. True. 
with the mysteriously missing bottle of poison, apparently. So Shanaz is denied bail on November 14th, which means that Shanaz is still in custody. And of course, the newspapers are delighted by this seemingly because the next day, Mashrik has a story about how, according to Shanaz's lawyer, her health is deteriorating because of being in police custody and she's not getting enough sleep. Now, look at this detail that they mention, even, and look <laughs> at what they're insinuating. Unlike other prisoners who are allowed cigarettes, there was special care being taken in Shanaz's case because the police feared she may inflict self-harm. So wow. what's the assumption here? That Shanaz smokes and they're not giving her cigarettes? Yes, she's having withdrawal yeah. symptoms. Yeah, but obviously not saying any of those things. And I don't think we've ever heard that Shanaz smoked. No, she was not allowed other clothes, even though in her regular life, she sometimes changed clothes up to four times a day. What? When Shanaz was taken out of the cell for questioning, she would cry and repeat that she had already answered questions. I find the clothes thing really interesting because I feel like it shows excessive four times a day is a lot. Like wearing something for breakfast, wearing something for lunch, something else for tea and then something else for dinner. And something else for another party. So yeah, this is yeah. this must be the lives of the rich and famous. And it's true, a lot of rich women did change clothes up yeah, to four did. times a they day. Did. They did. November 29th, 1970. The attempt charge sheet will be presented on December 3rd. December 2nd, 1970. Police claim to have finalized the charge sheet against Shanaz. December 3rd, 1970. Police get a 10-day remand for a court research court as investigation isn't complete. Shanaz complains about police behavior in court and is sent back to the police. Shanaz's lawyer asks for a better class for her in jail. In other news, a temporary charge sheet with names of 13 more witnesses is presented. At 2.45pm, Shanaz Gore is told to get ready to go to court. She gets ready. When she arrives at court, she covers herself with a large chadar. Police tried to use a lie detector on her, but she did not budge from her earlier statement. According to Mashrik, which also says that the police lied to Shanaz Gore and tell her that Salim has been arrested too. December 4th, 1970. Shanaz Gul is sent to Central Jail. Tuba, have you been to Central Jail? I have been to Central Jail. I've been there twice. I Can went you there. It's situated a bit in Karachi for people who have never been there and can't. So Central Jail was built by the British. It is so obviously pre-partition. Anyone who's heard of Jail Charangi or knows that area where all your cell phones stop working because they're jammers, that is Central Jail. I've been there twice. I once went there to cover an art exhibition which was being put up by the prisoners. And I went the second time when the moratorium on hangings was basically lifted. It's a very morbid, scary kind of building. It's The architecture is very nice, very beautiful. But I think the second you step inside, it's cold, drafty and very depressing. I don't know. It's very strange that they still have the same door, which you can even see in these photos that are taken in 1970. It's the same. If you've ever seen like an Indian film with jail, like it looks exactly like that, like the steel door and this looks like something. Yeah, it looks like Shole. Exactly. And yeah, my experience was also in in prison. It was very disconcerting. I remember when I went inside, the man who was showing us around, he pointed at this one wing of the prison and he, there, there was just like a bedsheet type thing, like as a door or a curtain or whatever. And he was like, you know, we actually don't keep doors and no one actually has weapons inside. Because anytime if someone gets attacked or like someone breaks out. And I swear to God, I was just like, I wanted to run away. I wanted to go home. And conditions in women's cells are terrible. I don't know what it was like in 1970, but now Pakistani prisons are known for overcrowding. Mm-hmm. There's horrible amounts of torture I that went, happens. I think in 20... 20- 13 or 2014, when they had started a library for women over there, 
So the women's jail was actually, I think, at that point, much more crowded, or at least felt much more crowded, crowded than the men's prison. Because there was yeah. more space for women to sit over there. Yeah, and again, it's unusual for women of Shanaz's stature mm-hmm. to really be in central jail, which is why it's being made of so much in the press. Of course, Shanaz is in jail. It's December 4th, 1970. And unfortunately for Pakistan's newspapers, they have to halt some of their coverage of Shanaz at this time because a general election is being held in the country. Oh, the general election. Like a landmark election. And yet everyone is obsessed with Shanaz. And yet, so the investigation is stopped because... Yeah, the police obviously needed on duty to, to do the election. And I could imagine that the commissioning editor on some of these stories being like, find me an election-related angle to Shanaz Gul. And so in Jung, on December 7th, 1970, there's a story about how Shanaz Gul would be allowed the facility to vote in the elections if she wants. Uh, interesting, because you know, Sabah, who else did a story on prisoners being allowed to vote in the 2018 election? Me! So, but in 1970, you would 100% have filed a story about whether Shanaz is allowed to... Uh, 100% I would have. So there's one story where Shanaz apparently tells somebody in prison that, yeah, she and her husband are registered voters, but she obviously won't be voting this year. I can't understand where all these imaginary conversations are coming from in prison. Like, we live in a time of, like, great technology, and I don't think I've heard this much about what a prisoner says. No. To the police in prison, as much as I've heard about Shanaz. Also, who are these people? Who are these people making this stuff up? What, what were they thinking? December 7th, 1970. Shanaz's lawyer submits content of court about the newspapers saying that Jung and Daily News are carrying fake and scandalous stories. Sabah, what kind of coverage were we seeing in the papers at this time? I remember there were photos of Shanaz and Salim, which was, I think, the first time I saw Salim. I had no picture of him in my head before that. Now we've seen photos of Salim from when Shanaz and him were mm-hmm. married um, and so on. But yeah, there were lots and lots of photos of SS Sheikh speaking yeah. to Salim or of Shanaz appearing in court completely covered. But yeah, it really seems like pretty much all of the characters, especially the lawyers, really became like little mm-hmm. stars. I mean, at this point, if I was reading the newspaper every day, I know what SS Sheikh wore to court every day. Yeah. What, you know, what car he drives. But this is what happens, I guess, in celebrity trials, right? A great example of this, by the way, is Johnny Depp's lawyer. Everyone knew who she was when she was in that case. They knew what she was wearing. They knew her, where she got her hair from. So I think these they become the main character in a way. Yeah, and similarly in the O.J. Simpson mm-hmm. trial, right? They become celebrity lawyers and kind of part of popular culture as well. But I think in the absence of any photos of anything mm-hmm. else, and they didn't have that many photos of Mustafa and Shanaz to run together. So I think they really like shifted it to, well, we'll just show you photos of the lawyers. And yeah. there's one photo of of Central Jail and Shanaz outside Central Jail. Also, I feel like they had literally used all of the Shanaz and Mustafa photos, which are maybe like five of them. Yeah, and then they shifted back to how can we get Shanaz in court photos? I think also during this time, one of my favorite stories, I think we've done this before, is the mushroom photographer. Oh, yeah. Like literally he, I don't know if, if he was getting paid extra for this, but he would try to get a shot every single time. Like it didn't matter where, how, what, he would go, he would have gone under that other. Yeah, 100%. The really interesting thing that happens in the initial sort of period of this, Shanaz's mother comes from Gujarat. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Shanata's mother comes from Gujranwala and she gives an interview to Nawai Vakt actually about her daughter. And she, um, you know, this case on her daughter's behalf and really kind of trying to present her daughter's character in a way that was different from what the mm-hmm. newspapers are saying, right? Instead of saying that she's some kind of socialite who goes to parties a lot, she really tries to present her and the family as quite conservative, body, as, as quite moral, and also presenting a really good picture of Salim. But I think of what it must have taken this woman, Duba, who lived a very mm-hmm. cloistered existence in Gujranwala to travel to Karachi while her daughter was at the center of this extremely public trial. I think like when I think about it, I feel like her mother would not have come, but I feel it's also because, you know, Shanaz had so many other sisters. There are four other sisters. So I mean, like everyone is married or about to be married or like, you know, in school. So I think it was a good show of support on her mother's behalf. That should all we stand with her because who did they have really? Except for Salim, who was there for Shanaz. December 13, 1970. Shanaz was presented in front of the district magistrate, Koridris. According to Jung, she is at Central Jail where Salim meets her and brings her things she asked for. December 15, 1970. According to Mashrik, Shanaz does not leave her barracks and cries all the time. So far, she's only met her husband once. December 16, 1970. According to Mashrik, Shanaz's remand, which is her time in custody, has been extended by another 10 days while the investigation is still going on and the elections are around the corner. Shanaz Gul, according to Mashrik, has asked her lawyers to get her out on bail. According to Navayavak, Shanaz Gul appears in court again and talks to her husband and her lawyer after the proceeding. December 21, 1970. Shanaz's bail application is presented in the district recessions court. The judge says it's preemptive. Shanaz's passport is with the police, so she can't flee till the investigation is complete, according to Namaiba. By this point, it has been over a month since Shanaz is in custody, and the police has yet to file a proper charge sheet against her. Saba, I have a question to ask here. Is it general practice for the police to take the passport and these things? Or is it something that happens over time? Or was it because they did feel that she would leave? I think they did fear that she would leave. And I think it's common for the police to seize or like at least get some kind of undertaking that you're not allowed to. I think probably maybe they submitted a sign of good faith that their client or their family member was not planning Mm. on leaving. And I mean, how is she going to leave? She's still strong. There's not going to be a jailbreak. Is there? December 21st, 1970. Jung has a dramatic story. According to Jung, Jail authorities did not give Salim permission to meet Shanaz Gul. Salim arrived at 3.45 and called the jailer to ask for permission to meet Shanaz so he could inform her about the bail applications that had been submitted. But his request was refused on the grounds that only one meeting per week was allowed, so he could only be allowed to come on the permitted day. Salim insisted that Shanaz must want to know the result of the bail application hearing. Please let me see her for five minutes. But his request was denied. December 22, 1970. Shanaz's final charge sheet will be presented in two days. Her lawyer will be there. December 23, 1970. Shanaz will present it in military court. Police will present the final charge sheet. According to Mashrik, the judge says bail denied because the police is about to present the complete charge sheet, which will now be presented the following day. December 24, 1970. The magistrate accepts the temporary charge sheet. The trial hearing is now set on December 31st. The police, meanwhile, is asking for their custody of Shanaz to be extended. A new year begins. January 13, 1971. Shanaz's lawyers submit a new bail application. January 5, 1971. Sessions judge Hidayat Hussain has admitted Shanaz's bail application and fixed January 7th of the hearing. Shanaz's lawyer, Wahid Faruqi, said his client had heart pain and pain in the left arm and a high fever. 
January 7, 1971. Shanaz Gul is finally freed on bail by the district and sessions judge. She is ordered to give two sureties of rupees 15,000 each. The smuggling and the conspiracy charges are dropped. On the next episode of Notes on a Scandal, we continue with the proceedings of the state versus Shanaz Gul. I'm Sabah Imtiaz. I'm Tuba Masood. And this is Notes on a Scandal. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Notes on a Scandal. Just want to remind you that you can follow us on Instagram on our Insta handle MurderMystery70 and our handles minus Tabahi Tuba. I'm Sabah Imtiaz. Also on Twitter, Tabahi Tuba. And Sabah Imtiaz.